0: Good morning, Sanctuary. The Lord be with you. I heard it. Our love and gratitude to Bishop Ed, Father Brent, and Reverend Janice, Father Paul, and to all the beautiful souls who were blessed to call friends at Sanctuary. We love you all. Greetings from Diana and I and our children, John, Luke, and Maddie. Greetings also from the people of the Sacred Commons in Youngstown, Ohio. I had the opportunity to be with some of you at the DOSA retreat in Tulsa a few months ago, I believe, in February. And at that retreat, I was given a text to preach from that pertained to the easy subject of human suffering. And once again today, the lectionary has graciously teed up another easy passage, the attempted sacrifice of Isaac. So I wonder if we could just take a moment and prayerfully, collectively, lower our expectations. (laughs) Sarcasm is probably my coping mechanism, but truthfully, uh, will you pray with me? God of provision, we ask today that you would speak to our hearts, that by your Spirit we could hear what it is you're saying to the church. All this we ask in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. In today's text, we see themes of sacrifice and obedience, provision and hospitality, and the reception and care of the messenger and the message of the gospel. So, I think I will start with the most awkward of these subjects, and that would be the attempted sacrifice of Isaac. Me and the physical attempt to sacrifice or kill anything, it just wouldn't go well. I've never killed anything. I shot a bird once as a kid with my BB gun. I didn't kill it. I probably gave it a concussion or some kind of deep abdominal contusion, but the thought of killing an animal... I just can't do it. I, from that moment on, I was traumatized. I found the song, His Eyes on the Sparrow, quite traumatizing. Uh, even now today, I'm almost 40 years old, and that story just bothers me. When I go fishing, I apologize to the fish as I unskillfully pull the hook out of the fish's mouth. I was invited once to go hunting for deer And I was up in the tree stand and the deer were walking far away and I was just not looking forward to the possibility that my friend could shoot a deer. Fortunately, I had to go to the bathroom and it turns out, I went to the bathroom near the the tree stand and it turns out deer have a really good sense of smell. So from that day on, we saw no more (laughs) deer. (sighs) Uh, So yeah, me and killing animals, it's just not supposed to happen. But I can already hear what you're saying. I can hear you saying, JP, don't you eat meat? And the answer is yes, I do. Kill the thing, grill it, sprinkle some salt on it, wrap it in a taco. I will eat it. I will even sing all creatures of our God and King while I eat that taco. Just don't make me don't make me watch you kill it. So the sacrifice of animals just seems so off-putting to my insulated, modern proclivities. And I don't think I'm alone in this. I think we all have a shared cultural aversion to the gruesome aspects associated with animal sacrifice, let alone this account of the binding of Isaac. What the heck is going on there? We tend to have this crude understanding of, of sacrifice. Kill something to appease a god and avoid a catastrophe. It's a horrible, deeply disturbing picture, but pagans, of course, would take this idea to the extent of even sacrificing their own children. What makes Israel unique, though, is that they are a people specifically born of an event where God says not to do this. If it were not for the voice of heaven, the voice from heaven, calling down to Abraham, saying, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy, the people of God would not be in existence. God interrupts the sacrificing of a son— and provides the lamb. It's fascinating to me that this account, the Akedah, the binding of Isaac and God providing a lamb. This is what the first letter of Peter and the book of Revelation both seem to be alluding to, that the lamb of God was foreseen, provided, slain even before the foundations of the world. So what are we to do with this? We definitely have to consider this subject as relevant to us as a people of the new covenant who worship the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, I, I think we have to get to the thing beneath the thing in regards to the language of sacrifice. So first, I'd like to offer you this, that sacrifice is a gift that brings about peace. It speaks to the innate desire within created beings that we want everything to be made whole, all things set right. Right? In other words, we desire flourishing, wholeness, the flourishing of relationships between God and those made in His image. And sacrifice has to do with this piece. It offers the possibility of relationship that is whole and unclouded. But sacrifice also forms a people. Again, think about this, wholeness, the communing of a people. And it forms a people not because of things like dominance and control and coercion, but it forms a people because of what God is doing, what God is providing. At its highest point, sacrifice establishes or reestablishes the commitment God has to God's people. The Lamb of God takes away the sin, frees us from our self-destruction, our state of revolting against the truth, frees us from the consequential gap between what we believe and the irregularities of what we do. We sin. And our sin undermines and destroys the life that is in us. So we need that gift of peace that offers another possibility. Hence, we need the Lamb of God, God's provision. As uncomfortable as this account is, I see the kingdom in it when heaven speaks to earth and tells Abraham to stop and put his sword in its place, and then God provides the Lamb. This moment becomes a pinnacle event in the story of God's people. And then, of course, sacrificing becomes very nuanced. In the book of Leviticus, there's a sacrifice for everything, probably one of the most significant being the Day of Atonement, where the sins of the whole people were ceremoniously cleansed. But in Exodus 29, there's an intriguing commandment given to offer a lamb morning and evening, day by day, on the altar. And by the time we reach the period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, Jewish thinkers seem to have begun connecting daily sacrifice back to the event that lays at the beginning of Israel's history, Abraham attempting to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah, and God providing the lamb. Later on, it was believed that the temple in Jerusalem stood on the place where Abraham had actually tried to sacrifice Isaac, and that the morning and evening sacrifice in the temple was a reenactment of that first event where God stepped in. Again, providing a lamb, forming a people. I think that forming of a people is important, so hold on to that. But the question for me is, what do we make of sacrifice as New Testament people? I think that we can faithfully say that God is not a bloodlusting, vengeful, retributive God. I don't think that Jesus, the Lamb of God, was sacrificed to appease God's thirst for revenge, but to free us from our self-destruction, for us and for our salvation. Yet the models of sacrifice mentioned in the Old Testament are brought up by writers of the New Testament. We see Paul and the writer of Hebrews kind of nod to things like the Day of Atonement and propitiation, and especially in 1 Corinthians, there's the mention of the blood of the New Covenant, the covenant. And then there's what I referenced earlier, this connection of Jesus as the Lamb of God who was slain from the creation of the world. So we have to somehow sit with this. And I can already hear the cynics asking, does God not do to Christ what he prevented Abraham from doing? Almost like saying, like God saying, uh, well, I still need blood, but don't worry, Abraham. Don't kill your son. I'll kill mine. I don't think so. I don't think this is close at all to the heart of God. We know this. We actually know that God was never really even into that whole sacrifice thing. And our ancestors of the faith had already spotted this. They knew it must be a symbol of something greater, a metaphor. In Psalm 40, the psalmist says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Then I said, here I am. I have come. I desire to do your will. And that, I believe, is what's at the heart of this. The answer is in the Old Testament itself. Sacrifice was never about fearful appeasement. It was always about loving obedience and covenant relationship. What's the greatest gift we could give to God other than we give back to Him the greatest gift He imparted into us? Our will, our heart, our decisions, our obedience. That's what God wants. To obey is better than sacrifice. Obedience is not coercive action, checking off our lists of God tasks. Obedience is when God looks into our world and sees a reflection of his own love. This emphasis of obedience is all throughout our text today. Obedience in the form of Abraham's hospitality saying over and over again, here I am, here I am. Obedience in Paul's writing, to the church in Rome saying, you once were slaves to your own self-destruction, but now you're slaves of obedience to the one who leads to righteousness and justice. Okay, but I, I still have a question. If sacrifice has less to do with the lopsided gruesomeness we attach to it and more with obedience, then why was Christ brutally crucified in such a bloody way? Why all of the parallel themes between the day of atonement and Jesus crucified? These are legitimate questions, questions that I don't have the answer to. But Rowan Williams, the man that I plagiarized this whole sermon from, (laughs) he does. And he would direct our attention to the idea that the life of obedience is a kind of sacrifice, perhaps the only kind that matters, that will have cruciform consequences. Here's why. Obedience is harmony with God's purpose, harmony with God's will. And Jesus was in perfect harmony with God, perfect obedience. This is why we can say that Jesus' sacrifice was that of obedience. He stretched out his arms upon the cross, as we say in the liturgy, and offered himself in obedience to God's will, a perfect sacrifice for the whole world. It was his harmony with God that led him to his death, because living that kind of way will reveal a risky contrast to the broken patterns of the world. The perfect obedience of Christ led him to be sacrificed, not to satisfy an inflexible, vengeful God, but more so because the way the world is makes the cross unavoidable. We can't live against the grain of reality and expect to survive indefinitely. If anyone takes responsibility for making peace, they take on the risk of drawing out a violent response. Rowan Williams says, to take responsibility for God's kingdom in the world is charged with risk. I would add to take responsibility for God's kingdom can also surprisingly be a risk even within the church. We're seeing this right now. Professor of Theology and Ethics, Dr. Lee Camp, talks about this when he writes that we should not intentionally seek controversy, but should instead simply seek to restate non-controversial assertions Christian Orthodoxy. Then he says this, the fact that these ideas may appear controversial illustrates how desperately we would-be Christians need to be reminded of the basic claims of our faith. In chapter 10 of Matthew's Gospel, the disciples are sent into the world with good news, and yet they're told to expect things like rejection and resistance, demonization, but to also carry their own sacrificial cross. I think if this were me, I'd choose some other kind of way (laughs) than in person rather than in the flesh. Uh, But Christianity is not some philosophy that can be learned separate from those who embody it. If the truth that is Christ were a truth that could be known in principle only, then we would not need apostles. Remember, the lamb provided from the beginning always creates and embodied people, committed to a new way of living together. Paul speaks of this when he writes, In light of the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then just a few verses later, he describes what that embodiment, that obedience to the will of God will look like when he says in verse 13, Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. This brings me to the last thing I'd like to share with you all today. Amid a chapter filled with rejection, in our gospel text today, we find hope. Jesus talks about those who will receive the apostles, the sent ones, those who will contribute to the needs of the saints who are extending hospitality. And he says this. Whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in the name of a disciple, truly I tell you, none of these will lose their reward. If this tells us anything, it reveals that the smallest conceivable gift, the smallest conceivable embodiment of hospitality to the least significant of his disciples can and will bring about the most abundant blessing because it opens up the promised possibilities of the kingdom of God Sacrificing for God is not masochistic ministry where we neglect our family and children and call that serving the Lord. As I was preparing to write the sermon yesterday, feeling the responsibility of speaking to people that I deeply love and respect about a subject that I do not find easy, my daughter Madi asked me if she could go on a walk with me, and being the loving father that I am, My immediate and tender response was, absolutely not. This is the sacrifice of ministry that you have to pay, my dear. (laughs) It's ridiculous, right? This is just Isaac on the altar all over again. Then under the annoyance conviction of the Holy Spirit, I was reminded that sacrificing for God is not ministry as neglect. It's simply opening oneself up, presenting our body. To be hospitable to God's people, from the greatest prophet to the smallest one in his kingdom. Our sacrifice is when we bind ourselves to Christ in harmony with God's purposes. Church, this can be anything from a cup of water, to taking a walk, to standing with the oppressed. I don't care if it's water flowing into the cup of a little one, or if it's justice flowing out into society like a mighty river even if that means we risk breaking our fear-based attachments, even if that means having a hospitality that creates a strong contrast, even if that means the risk of taking responsibility for God's kingdom in the world, this is what hospitality is. It's receiving into your house a holy responsibility. Filled with risk, yes, but also with promise and reward. For when we say, like Abraham, here I am. That's when the Lord provides. Heaven touches earth. We find an obedience that leads to justice. Humble disciples receive the miracle of God providing even for their most basic needs. And as for us, for for those of us who receive them, we're blessed with the same reward as the prophet because to receive the messenger is to receive the one who sent the message. And when we receive the good news, salvation comes into our home. A new world is possible. Justice is possible. Peace is possible. And joy is possible. The kingdom comes. And there's no greater reward than that. Amen. We love you, Sanctuary. And may the Lord continue to be with you.